Welcome to the Movie Geeks United Slam Dance Spotlight. The Slam Dance Film Festival takes place January 25th through the 31st in Park City, Utah. Now in its 24th year, the festival continues to define the spirit of independence in filmmaking. On this episode, we're thrilled to be joined by three filmmakers whose latest works are being featured in this year's festival. First up, Mark Jackson, the director and co-screenwriter of This Teacher. The film tells the story of a French Muslim woman who travels to New York City, disappears into a remote cabin, and experiences a divine revelation. This is the second appearance Mr. Jackson has made on our show. The first was in connection to his previous film, War Story, which starred Catherine Keener and Ben Kingsley. Tell me, tell me first of all, before we get into the, the impetus of making the film, uh, tell me about this, this journey of, of screening it thus far, because you're, you're at Slamdance later in the month, but you've, you've screened it previously in other festivals as well, right? Right. Um, we premiered at L.A. at the Los Angeles Film Festival in September, um, and we, we took the, the top prize there in the narrative competition. And, wow. Um, so that was a great experience. Um, when I was in L.A., I was, you know, it was pretty nerve-wracking to, be in, to premiere the film, right? So I, uh, I was walking around outside, and I don't know if you've been to Los Angeles recently, but there's, uh, there's scooters everywhere. And so I really? just uh, hopped on one of those motorized scooters and rode it for an hour and a half. So it was uh, exhilarating and a great distraction from the fact that uh, the film was <laughs> playing. Yeah, yeah. I'm going. I'm going back there at the end of uh, the end of March. But where, where, where's the LA Film Festival held? It, Culver City. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Which runs, which is you know close to the river. So I just like rode the scooter along the river all the way to the ocean and back. And then the movie was over. That, and then I was okay, late for so Q&A, this was, this... which is great. So I didn't have to participate in the full <laughs> Q and A. So if you were if you were forced to actually sit sit at the back of the theater while the audience was watching it, you you would be a nervous wreck. Uh, no, it's just like, I, I'm, I was so sick of it at that point. Uh, mm. I had, I'd done, I'd done something like, uh, 58 watch downs, you know, over the course of the editing process. And, you know, I was just, I had everything, I had the whole thing memorized. So it was just, it was, it would have been torturous to watch it again. And yeah. I hope I never, you know, have to watch it again, but, uh, do, do your other films still feel like a living part of you, or do they feel like a thing of the past, where you were? Um, I uh, so I was on your show, you know, a while back with my previous film, and I was trying to, you know, I, I don't even, I don't really remember the film. Um, hmm. It was, uh, and I recently just went back to the town. Yeah, I just went back to the town in Sicily for a wedding. And I hadn't been back there since we shot the film, so it was a uh, it was a really fascinating walk into the past. But I think you know, once as far as film goes, once it's made, it's made, and and that's that's it. And I I, yeah. I have a terrible memory, so I just kind of it's <laughs> you know I, I could sort of call up like the pain of of watching 
this teacher so many times during the editing process, but I've already kind of forgotten it, so I feel okay about it now. Where is where is the most pleasure and self-fulfillment for you in, in the process of making a movie? Where do you find that? Um, probably two, two spots when, uh, when I'm writing and I come up with a much better idea to a problem that I've been avoiding, uh, resolving. So there's some, uh, there's something that I know that sucks in the script and I just keep, I just keep avoiding, uh, really breaking it down because uh because i i don't know i don't have an answer i don't have an easy answer and so once once i finally uh, removing that from my peripheral because I, I never lose sight of it even though i'm trying to ignore it and uh bringing it into my field of vision properly and and taking it apart that's uh that's really satisfying to and to find a solution to it um yeah. i'm currently writing a script that has been the longest I've ever written something. And so I've been doing that continuously and there's been a lot of, you know, it seems like as soon as I, I'm really close to, to finishing it, I, I admit to myself that there is a, there's a glaring issue. That's there, there's something that's just not strong or not strong enough. And um, rather than kind of hammering forward with it, I'll, I'll take it apart. And it's, it's made for a longer mm-hmm. process, but hopefully a better film. Yeah. Um, well, I think I think so too. I mean, it is a it is a process to allow it to crystallize in your mind, so it, it feels authentic. And I think otherwise, if you're if you're rushing through it to get it done, you might fall back on what you've seen other films do or cliches, and, and not necessarily what's true for you. Certainly. Maybe. Yeah. So tell me about this teacher. How how long was this gestating in, in you? Um, so this, uh, the, the origins that I remember are, um, started with the, the white nationalist rally in Charlottesville and, uh, the particularly susceptible to earworms, sort of something just plays on repeat in your head and, uh, the chant. I was watching the coverage of that and the chant of the, uh, the white nationalist was, was you will not replace us. And it's yeah. particularly striking with the, the tiki torches that they were parading around with and the, the expressions of absolute rage um, and fear. I would, I'd say because this, because they are afraid of, of replacement and you know, that's what brought them, brought them all out there. Um, and, and that being part of, uh, an administration that, that rose to power, stoking that, that fear and that fire of replacement and, uh, feeding into, um, uh, a platform of, of, of racism and, and xenophobia and misogyny and paranoia. And it seemed it all seemed particularly urgent to provide some sort of alternative because all of this is dehumanizing, right? This, uh, this dehumanization of the other, and so it felt really urgent to um, come up with some to, to portray something else, a humanizing portrait of of a Muslim woman, because that's 
that's the magic of this medium that we love so dearly, right? Is to transport us into uh, another person's uh, life, another person's perspective, and uh, with uh, with all that has been going on and has been said, it seemed so uh, so urgent to to talk to talk about what it would be like to be Muslim. Uh, what what is it like for not only to hear this rhetoric but to have it be normalized uh, and yeah. inevitably internalized and uh, and what does that do for for an average person and that's uh, that's where Hafsia came in and I'd worked with Hafsia Hersey on my previous film and she's immensely gifted and uh, I went to her immediately with this uh, with this idea. And she immediately said yes, and uh, we really crafted this this thing together. Okay, that's the, I, I was curious about that because um, because the pro, because it, you're you're representing I would think a a culture that is not necessarily your own. Uh, so so you want to make sure you're true to to that voice that you're trying to articulate. Uh, so, so, so you and your your lead actress. Her, how do you pronounce her first name again? She. Um, I say Hafsia. I pronounce that that H, but she would probably say Afsia. But that's also okay. Yeah, Hafsia. So this this was really a, a close collaboration between you, uh, in in the pre production as well, in crafting it. Yeah, definitely. Like she was, she was. Uh, it was it was just it was really heartening to have her be on board immediately um when I just broke down the initial idea and then you know just kept running things by her i uh I speak terrible french and she she speaks terrible english so there was uh <laughs> <laughs> there was a lot of uh, there was a lot of work to be done in in communication but uh you know we we figured it out and she is just i mean she has she's such a great presence on film and she she's got a remarkable face that that it, it it has layers uh you know and you can't keep your eyes off of her um she's just uh, there's no question in this i just wanted to tell you i was i was so immensely impressed with her in this film and uh i wanted to ask you too because since this movie was a reaction of sorts to the the political and cultural climate we're currently living in um, if it, it, during the course of the film, she experiences um, a spiritual epiphany, or uh, I'm not sure what kind of language you want to use, but I'm curious if if this film for you and the process of making it was was your spiritual epiphany in the midst of all this chaos that's going on. Sure. I mean to to comment on the on your first remark. Yeah, I, just, I find Hafsia just endlessly watchable. Like she could. Uh, I I I really like uh, films where we see someone just you know eating an apple, and she's someone that yes. I would I would just watch eating an apple in its entirety. And that, you know that scene that's in there, it was like originally, you know, a minute and a half of her eating an apple, and I realized that I couldn't do that, but I wouldn't have minded. Uh, yeah, she's. I think she's really captivating. Um, Very much. So this. So I'm. I'm. I've been drawn to. I've always been drawn to mythology, and uh, and 
also the mythology within the uh, the Catholic Church that I was raised in. Um, so there's elements of of the saints, uh, the saint origin stories that have crept into this film. And uh, my idea about uh, what I mentioned earlier about the normalization and internalization of a rhetoric of hatred and what that does to the, to an average person at a at a crossroads of quarter life and I, and um, I, I posed the question you know what if what if that turned her uh, on a path to religious ecstasy and uh, mm-hmm. within within the Catholic Church that's what that's what you would call an awakening um, and that's that's not something that I've uh, I've ever personally experienced uh, a spiritual awakening or religious ecstasy but. Um, my partner in life and, and in writing this film, Dana Thompson has, and um, she described it to me as, as suddenly perceiving life without borders. And I, mm-hmm. I found that to be utterly beautiful and uh, a, a wonderful message for the current times that we're in. Um, that's where that comes from. I think, uh, and isn't that it doesn't that represent uh, i mean it's an ongoing struggle to to maintain that sense of universality uh with all this chaos around you uh, i mean that's that kind of that kind of defines the struggle that we all kind of have to grapple with in this in this life i think especially now so I, that's i mean i thought it was beautifully handled in in your film really Thank you. Uh, certainly, I actually think that's what uh, you know. Our fallibility as humans is what is the most beautiful part of us. You know, this this woman uh, experiences the divine and delivers a, a beautiful soliloquy um, that de- that seeks to describe an uh, indescribable experience. And then, you know, moments later, she's punching someone in the nose. And I think that's yeah, you know, and it does nothing to diminish the fact that she experienced the divine you know, it's uh it's 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 the beauty of our of our humanity because in in divinity and and uh an experience where we understand that uh, there is no borders or no separation that's always waiting for us so we can get caught up in uh in our ideas our our issues and and always and always come back to this. You know, it's like meditation. Our mind water wanders, and we continuously, gently guide it back to the breath. Yeah. You know, you have in 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 watching this film and then watching War Story previously, you have such a uh, a unique sensibility as a filmmaker. And if I if I remember correctly, didn't necessarily. Uh, live uh, devouring films growing up. Do I remember that right? You you weren't necessarily day and night watching films devouring. Right. No. I mean, when I was growing up, I I love like if I think about my favorite movies are still my movies of my my childhood. So my favorite movies are still Rocky Four and Ghostbusters and uh, R-rated Eddie Murphy. You know, that's uh, that's. And that kind of feels like a different medium than what I mm-hmm. I do. Uh, and I think I I went through a period of 
uh, of understanding the this. The, you know what it is. I was thinking about it. So I I discovered cinema in a different form other than this large large scale cinema when um, when I was in Italy, and uh, I remember watching a film by Pasolini called Acatone, and it's it was his first film. And it's um, and I was familiar with his work as a as a poet and as a writer, and um, and I really hadn't experienced much by way of independent or art cinema, and it was rife with uh, technical errors, um, and but it still grabbed me and pulled me in to the story, um, and it, it didn't hurt that the the protagonist looked like a young version of my father so that also uh, reeled me in and then but it, it really made me think that oh this this isn't cinema isn't just this thing that you movies just aren't this thing that you consume but you also make and I was aware that because I was aware of the errors I was aware that it was made whereas mm. uh, I think if I would have continued to watch movies that were you know quote-unquote perfect you know I after after I watched Pasolini I started watching all the old Italian uh, masters and you know, maybe if I would have watched Antonioni first, who's technically perfect and a, and a master, maybe I would never have even tried my hand at this. Um, mm. But that's what that's what got well, when, first started for me. But do, so, do you do you find those those filmmakers like the Pasolinis and Antonioni's? Do you find that they're more akin to your sensibilities? I mean, do you, or when you see when you watch movies, do do you gravitate towards movies that are in sync with your sensibilities or do you want to watch something that's so out, outside what you would normally do like a Ghostbusters or Rocky Four? Yeah, I would rather um, I'd rather do some, I'd rather watch something that I can't do myself so I don't um, mm-hmm. I don't love watching low budget stuff or smaller independent films uh, I think I'm or just as a spectator I I I have you know I still have I've made three movies and I have no idea how a lot of this stuff is done with these you know effects or or uh, digital things like it's a it's a marvel to me how in the world they even think about uh, you know how how do they make Spider Man move I don't get it and uh, mm-hmm. that's that's fascinating but I I do you know there there's stuff that like Antonioni, I think I had a lot more. You know, we lost one of our masters as well, like Bertolucci, this year, just recently. Yeah. Um, his his very his earlier stuff really spoke to me, and it was more um, uh, experimental. And uh, that's 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 how I first got into it. Was the more it was stuff that bucked the. Uh, it's not just Hollywood. It's really it's all of American cinema follows a very clear protagonist objective and and that's just mm-hmm. not something that I've I've ever I've ever been drawn to and it's not something that comes naturally to me at all to write um but that's so it's so it's challenging for me to try to um to think of something that's that's more uh not necessarily commercial but just conventional cuz I I do actually find it incredibly satisfying to to watch something where the the protagonist has a clear objective and he is 
a lot of obstacles. He or she has a lot of obstacles and we're with them on that journey. Yeah. That's great. It's really a satisfying experience. Yeah, it does fulfill a need for for that that kind of storytelling that I, I think we all we all have. But it, it's interesting because um, I was talking to um, Spike Lee's editor a couple of weeks ago, and, and he's been mm-hmm. his editor since the very beginning of his career till now. And he said he did he kind of stumbled into editing. Uh, he hmm. never intended to be one. To be one, and it wasn't until Malcolm X, which was a good, what's probably seven, eight years after he'd been working as an editor for Spike, it wasn't until Malcolm X that he thought to himself, "Huh, I'm an editor. <laughs> hmm. I guess I'm an editor." It was, was there has there been a moment for you in your career, having made a couple of a couple of films on when when it occurred to you, "Oh wow, I, I really know how to do this. I'm a director." <laughs> That's that's pretty amazing that he came to that realization during Malcolm X. That's like a three-hour movie. So he's uh, <laughs> yeah, that's a yeah. lot of editing. <laughs> uh, yeah, he's, he's fantastic. Um, no, I think uh, I'm uh, constantly uh, learning and and realize my deficiencies. You know, I talk about like the the weaknesses of Pasolini's technical direction, but that's certainly my weakness as well. Uh, and so there's, there's so much, I don't know, and there's so much to learn and, uh, there's a lot of stories to tell. So I, I don't know, not, not yet. Yeah. doesn't feel like do you find yet, that the, soon, hopefully. You, well, I mean, you know, don't feel bad about that. I mean, any, anytime you might question yourself from that, then just think of the, uh, Spike Lee's editor. <laughs> <All right. laughs> You'll be fine. Uh, a three hour movie to. Give himself that credit, huh? Yeah. Do you, you know, it, it's such a, you know, it's kind of understandable in a way when you feel like, uh, am I really a director? Do I know what I'm doing? Because there's, there's such an enigmatic quality to the process. I mean, you can't, you can't really articulate it. And that's, I mean, that's what, what I've tried to do with a thousand interviews I've done in this show is articulate something that is kind of ethereal in a way. I, I mean, how right. does it work? Um, and uh, well, do you have any thoughts on on that? I mean, it, do you do you embrace the kind of the mystery of it? Um, well, I think that. So, just as an example, this this film that you just watched, the the dialogue contained in the first half of the third act is more dialogue than in my first two films combined. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I'm not, uh, words don't come very easily or naturally to me. Uh, and it's, uh, I think if I, if left to my own devices, when my partner is not around, when Dana's not around, I don't really say much. And, uh, and so to describe it in words is not something that I could, that I can do. Um, but it's all as a director, when someone, it, um, you, do, you have to talk a lot, which is not something yeah. that, that comes easily <laughs> for me to direct. Uh, but uh, yeah, it's it's. It, I think it's it's not something that uh, you know. It's something I feel compelled to do. I think that I'm I'm learning and I'm, I'm getting better at it. If, uh, I don't feel like I'm good at it, but I um, 
it's something that um, that's a calling. You know, I don't think that I don't know that I don't imagine that a director is made. I imagine that it's it's something that they're called to do, and that's that there's always something yeah mysterious in that like in, in something that you're compelled to do rather than uh, something that uh, is articulate. And I, get, I mean, I get that feeling from your movies. Uh, 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 that that's and that's how I know you're great. There, there's there's a, a like a, soul, a soulfulness that you, that I can't quite articulate, but I feel it. And that's the important thing is that I feel it. You know, it, uh, to put it in the words might even diminish it in some way. Um, and I feel that with all the great directors. And, and believe me, you are one of them. I mean, I, I believe that about you. Thank you very much. That's very generous of you. I appreciate that, Jim. Uh, tell me a little bit about Slam Dance because you have a history with this festival. Uh, tell me the person. Each festival, I guess, would have its own personality. Uh, what's the personality of Slam Dance? I think uh, Slam Dance's commitment to uh, no budget, unknown, no resources. Uh, films is uh, is really a valuable contribution to cinema, and um, I'm I'm extremely grateful for them providing my very first platform, and and really grateful to be their closing night film. Um, mm. And I think uh, you know you 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 go to Slam Dance and you're you're going to see something um, that's special. They might not not all be special, but. Uh, there's there's going to be people that are doing it. If you're doing it on this level, you're doing it um, out of love and and passion, and that can that can make for some some powerful art. I think so too. Yeah, and they matter and they matter deeply to the people that made them. Um, I love I love I love festival audiences because I mean it it is such a community, and you know that these people love movies too. They're just not. They're not just taking their date out on a Saturday night to watch a slasher flick. They're <laughs> they're invested in loving the art as well. Yeah, it's really exciting to to share it with an audience that is that comes in uh, ready to invest and ready ready to work for for their experience. Won't want to be a uh, an active spectator. That was Mark Jackson, the director and co-screenwriter of This Teacher. His film will be this year's Closing Night Selection, premiering on January 31st. Next up, first-time feature filmmaker Alec Tobaldi, whose debut film Spiral Farm will enjoy its world premiere at the festival on January 29th. This acutely observed coming-of-age story features a naturalistic beauty of a performance by Piper De Palma, daughter of acclaimed director Brian De Palma. As a young woman who begins to gain a sense of the world outside the confines of her close-knit commune, the film also stars acting veteran Amanda Plummer as her mother. So I'd made a couple of shorts with Piper De Palma, who's the lead actress in Spiral Farm, and um, I really wanted to write a feature for her. Um, so I came up with the original storyline with her. Um, and then I found the setting through a series of research trips that I did in Southern California. Um, and I spent some time on various communes or intentional communities. Um, and I interviewed people who had grown up in communes in the 70s and 80s. 
Um, and I thought that the commune setting would be the perfect place to tell this story. Um, so it was sort of like a mix of wanting to find a piece for Piper to work on with her and then this exploration of communes, which led to the film. Yeah, I I wanted to focus with you on, first of all, uh, well, performance and, 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 and shooting, but also your sense of setting and place, because when you watch us, when when you watch this movie, it's uh, it's apparent that you you know the setting very well. Uh, so when when you visited these communes, I mean, did you have any kind of preconceptions of, of what you're walking into, and, and what most surprised you about uh, what you experienced when you were visiting them? Sure. Yeah. Um, well, I really wanted to try and uh, have the setting. I as as the filmmaker, I really didn't want to give too much judgment on the setting. And when I went in to visit mm-hmm. these communes, I definitely had a lot of my own sort of prejudgments about them. Um, so, you know, I, 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 I found the people that I met to be extremely interesting. Um, you know, just a group of people who had basically decided that they didn't want to live within the confines of our society and they were, you know, basically creating their own utopia together. And, you know, there was a real emphasis on betterment and uh, enlightenment, and it was a very spiritual place. And, um, yeah, they, I mean, they have a lot of unorthodox ways of, of living, like those that shamanic ceremony in the film is something that I really experienced. Um, mm. And I definitely went in with a lot of judgments at first and sort of like trepidations about it. Um, but I knew right away from a, from a filmmaker's perspective that it was going to be a really interesting setting um, because of everybody's sort of prejudgments about them. And I really wanted to try and present the commune as like a multifaceted place that's not a utopia, um, but also not a torture chamber. You know, like it's a sort of like anything in life, it's like a mix between good and bad. And um, I, I didn't want to put too much judgment into the setting. Right. What, so when you were meeting with the residents of these communes, was that was was that kind of what they wanted you to make sure that you put in your your film as well? I mean, did they have specific uh, uh, requests of of how you portrayed them? No, I was more of like an observer when I went. Um, I participated okay. in some of the ceremonies and I talked to people in kind of a more colloquial way. Um, I let them know that I was a filmmaker, but I wasn't too specific about what I was researching. Because also at the time, I wasn't sure if an intentional community was going to be the setting for this story. Um, So I was just kind of exploring and figuring it out. Um, And I have a really dear friend who grew up on a commune in the 80s. So I spoke to her at length about her childhood. And uh, she was sort of the basis for Anahita, her experiences, her sort of rebellion in that setting. Um, I was really interested in exploring how would a teenager come of age in this very free hippie love environment and how would Mm -hmm. sort of her sexuality blossom in a place that's so sexual and so open and what that would do to a young person. Um, So I definitely talked to my friend a lot about that and I observed a lot of the inhabitants of the communes that I visited. Yeah. And I was so, uh, immensely impressed with Piper uh, because I, I, I hadn't seen her uh, before uh, prior to this film. But you'd worked with her 
a couple of times on your previous short films. Uh, what is it about Piper that uh, kind of ins- inspires you? Um, well, I met Piper when she was only 16, and uh, we did two shorts when she was still in high school and I was uh, in college. Um, and I just, I really love actors who, um, I guess my favorite quality about Piper is that I never feel like she's pushing the performance. Um, I find that mm-hmm. she can really inhabit, like, like all of the performances feel really in, like inhabited and authentic and um, she's kind of like incapable of being false. Um, she'll never push something that's not there and all of her work is really textured and um, you know, she's like really, she, she, she has this quality where you really feel like she's thinking a lot about what she's doing. And she comes off on screen as kind of very pensive and she has this intelligence and this weight to her. Um, and, you know, she's, I feel like the camera really, res- like she has a great relationship with the camera um, where she really responds to it. So, um, mm. you know, she was, she was a joy to film and a joy to work with. Yeah. I find that there's, there's nothing more powerful in cinema than seeing, just seeing an actor thinking and processing yeah. something. And, and, and Piper embodies that in your film. Like you feel like you could watch her forever. That there, there'd be instant kind of, or constant revelations, just, just observing her. Yeah. And what's interesting is that on set, um, watching the monitor and watching her act, I wasn't quite sure if it was going to work because, you know, the work that she's doing as an actor is so subtle that oftentimes mm-hmm. when you're standing far from her, you really aren't picking up on it. So I didn't really know all the stuff she was doing until I got into the editing room. Um, and then I was like, oh, wow, she's, she, you know, because you, you, yeah. you can't even, the camera's able to pick something up with that type of acting that you can't see when you're there. Um, so that was nice is that the performance was something that we got on the set, but then we kept discovering little things that she would do you know, little eye movements and sighs and just like sort of slightest mannerisms that um, really popped out in the editing. I, I understand that completely. There, there was a, there was a story that Dennis Hopper told years ago. I remember he was di- directing that movie colors with Duvall, Robert Duvall and Sean Penn. And he was watching a take with Robert Duvall and he said, no, no, no. Could you, could you give us a little bit more with this reaction? And Duvall was like, it's there. <laughs> and he said, yeah. okay. It's, so it's, and they went to the editing room, and damn if it wasn't there. It was right there, everything they needed. There yeah. was such a kind of a subtlety that, yeah, it's beautiful. Uh, yeah, and, 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 and I think I was also kind of, as a first-time director, you know, Piper had never been in a film before. So, you know, there were moments where I had doubts because I was like, oh, like, you know, she's never done this before. I've never done this before. Like, how do we think we can really pull this off? Um, so there was definitely moments where I was like, you know, like I obviously really believed in her and knew that she could do it. But there were moments when I was like, damn, like this is kind of crazy. Like we, we're, we're both so green and this is like both our first time. Um, so it was, uh, it was definitely a huge learning experience for the both of us. Yeah. And on the other end of the spectrum, you have Amanda Plummer who comes to the table with so many years of great experience and performances. And, and, and she herself embodies such a, 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 
a free spirit. She she has that feeling about her. Uh, and I'm I'm wondering what what it was like to to direct her and, and work in her presence. Yeah. So what was interesting about our our cast was that we had a group of uh, very varied people. You know, we we had some of the background performers were real commune members or people who'd lived on communes who had never acted hmm. before. Then we had uh, people like Piper who were actors but had never been in film before. And then we had more seasoned actors like Amanda. So it was this very interesting mix of people. Um, and um, yeah, I, I mean, I wrote the part with Amanda in my mind uh, while I was writing it, never really thinking that she would do it. Um, and I luckily got to meet with her after she'd read the script. I had, I had passed her the script, uh, hoping that she would read it. And she very nicely read it. And we had this incredible meeting uh, where she had all these notes and, you know, I, I'd explained to her that I wanted to do a heavily improvisational film uh, where the script that I'd written was basically just a blueprint for where all the scenes could go. And she really loved that. And she, and she sort of came to the table with a completely different take on this character. Um, so, you know, it was, it was very difficult to get her to do the movie because we were so low budget and because she's, you know, used to working in a different way. Um, but luckily it miraculously worked out and we were able to get her. Um, to be perfectly honest, I was super intimidated by her um, just because she has had this incredible career on, you know, on, on stage and on screen. And I felt, you know, moments of not feeling like I could really play with her in that way. Um, so I, you know, gave her a lot of freedom um, and basically, you know, I think part of directing at, at, at times is to create an environment where people can do their best and then oftentimes step back and let that happen and not micromanage um, right. and, to really, and to really trust people and to trust the people that you're working with. Um, and that was definitely something that I learned on this film was, you know, I'd spent years developing these characters and writing this story. But then at the end of the day, you know, when you're filming it and when you're shooting it, you, you, you hand off that, you, you hand off a lot of the creativity to the people that you're working with and you have to just trust them. Um, so in Amanda's case, it was very easy to put my trust in her because I really knew that she understood the character and we'd had lengthy conversations. You know, Amanda's one of those people that loves to sit and have a coffee and really talk. And um, mm. as a director, it's, it's just so, you know, fulfilling to have, you know, you, you write these characters by yourself for years and then you get to sit next to someone who's just read it and has a totally fresh take on it. So um, I felt very privileged to get to work with her. Yeah. Uh yeah, she's so wonderful in the movie. Uh and and your your photography in the film, it's amazing because I, I mean a, lo a lot of the film I was watching it and I was thinking this isn't something that you can script. Uh so it's it, it's great to hear you say that there was a, a kind of an improvisational quality to a lot of it because the the camera I mean it's right in there and yet it doesn't feel obtrusive. And so there are just moments like, you know, the moment that flashes in my mind, it's not a super dramatic moment. They're just, they're just washing dishes and you feel like you're eavesdropping. You feel like there, there's no 
ostentatious kind of gestures or anything. It just feels so authentic, like you're in that kitchen with them in that moment of just washing the dishes. It feels very tactile. And and so is that was that part of your kind of visual scheme with this film to give the audience that sense? Yeah, I mean, we we I definitely knew from a story perspective that I really wanted to capture those quiet moments in a young person's awakening. Um, so from a story perspective, that that is definitely something that I wanted to do. And in terms of the camera, we, you know, decided that it was definitely going to be a single point of view movie um, and that we would just kind of, you know, the, the director of photography that I worked with, Scott Ray, he's an incredibly sensitive person. And I knew that he was going to be the right person to tell this story because the story is so rooted in the emotional life of our protagonist. So I knew that I wanted, uh, you know, a director of photography with a certain sensitivity who was going to really know how to respectfully capture, you know, these very intimate moments, Um, you know, because we are seeing a young person, you know, come of age and discover their sexual identity. And, you know, you know, we, we, we see her washing dishes. We, we see her, you know, working with horses. We see her masturbating. We see, you know, we, we see all of these very intimate things, um, and I knew that I wanted, uh, you know, it was very important that I find the right person in terms of a personality too, um, because I, I really needed Piper to trust the camera and to become an extension of the camera. And the camera mm-hmm. at times felt like it was her sort of subconscious mind almost, um, and that we were with her for the whole movie, you know, like 85 minutes of just being with this one person, um, so yeah, that was a yeah. that was a really important element. Absolutely. And you, um, I'm curious to know about your your sensibility when it comes to what you're drawn to cinematically. I mean, you you I would imagine you grew up kind of deeply invested in film. That you grew up in that culture. Your your family is was involved in film, correct? Yeah, my uh, dad is a filmmaker, um, and my mother worked in casting. Um, so yeah, I, I grew up, uh, you know, immersed in lots of movies and conversations at the dinner table were always about movies and my parents were, are, and, and were lovers of, you know, theater and, and music. And, uh, I went to an arts high school, so I was, I was sort of always involved and surrounded by the arts. Um, so I was really, really lucky. Uh, that I got exposed to a lot of wonderful uh, artistic things when I was a kid. Are there are there particular directors that you feel in, uh, akin to that you feel like that they share the way you view the world or that you gravitate towards? Um, yeah, I mean, I love um, Woody Allen is my favorite director. I also love Noah Baumbach, Andrea Arnold, Xavier Dolan, Lena Dunham. Uh, Lars von Trier. Um, I'm sure I'm forgetting people, but um, I, you know, I, I, no, that's, I, I that's love... impressive. That uh, to go from Woody Allen to Lars von Trier. That's <laughs> that's a great yeah. Range when I was right there, when I was ten, I had watched at the time like all thirty of Woody Allen's films. I had rented them at our local video store, um, and I and I had. And I think before I was 11, I'd seen all of his movies. Um, And that was really the first time that I fell in love with a filmmaker and watched films based on a 
director and not an actor. Um, and from that age onwards, I started to, you know, explore people's filmographies based on the filmmaker. Um, so yeah. like he, he, he like totally opened up my, my, my eyes and, and, you know, he, he, he's, he's really what started my love of, uh, filmmaking. You know, what amazes me most about him is the fact that he always said that when I see a blank pad of paper, I just have to fill it. It's just his 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 output as as if nothing else, just as a writer, where it doesn't seem to be a tortured, painful process to him, Uh, and and that's so unusual. And I'm wondering, is it for you? Like when you have to conceive an idea and build on it, is it kind of a painful process for you? Yeah, it it definitely doesn't come easy to me and I'm, I'm unfortunately very lazy. So for me, it's, um, uh, <laughs> writing is, I, I'm, I'm not somebody who, you know, I'm not like a real writer who wakes up every morning and writes for an hour and a half every, every day. Um, I, 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 I have a hard time writing. Um, I, I do most of the writing in my head. Um, and then even like with this project, like even after I completed the script, I basically told the actors that they could kind of do whatever they wanted. Um, so I'm not super, uh, I try not to get super attached to the script and I always feel, or not always, but at least in this case, I definitely felt like the actors came up with so many great ad libs and so many great moments that I could have never come up with. Um, so I try not to get too attached I know I know this is your first film but I mean in, in talking ab- about other filmmakers it's, it's some of whom you mentioned like Woody Allen uh, I mean yeah. I think a lot of directors feel like they're they're making a different version of the same film that they're grappling with something co- throughout their career from as many different angles as they can do you feel like there might be a theme that 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 dominates what you want to do in film? Um, yeah, that feels like kind of a big question. Um, I I I think so. I think there are several. I think the theme of family and young people coming of age is what I gravitate to a lot as a movie watcher. Um, and I feel like that is something that I'd like to keep exploring within my projects. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think family dynamics are, 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 are super interesting and, you know, filmmakers like Noah Baumbach capture them so beautifully and Andrea Arnold and, um, you know, they're, they've definitely been super inspirational to me in, in how they're able to portray a dysfunctional family in a really cinematic, but also very inhabited and naturalistic way. Um, uh, yeah. yeah, and you so, and you got you got that you got that with your film. I mean, the, the one of the things I appreciate most about films is when they feel lived in, and your movie feels lived in. Uh, if you know what I'm trying to say, I don't know if I'm articulating it correctly. Thank <laughs> but you. Yeah, no, like no. That 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 world was inhabited before you pointed the cameras at it. Thank you. Yeah, no, that was that was our our goal, and I'm happy that you felt that way. And, you know, I think, um, you know, you know, we, we, we made this on a very low micro budget and, um, you know, I think it's, it's easy to look at your heroes who 
are making, you know, really big budget movies, but, um, you know, the, there were, there were two more micro budget independent filmmakers who really inspired me to feel like I could tell this story with the limitations of that budget. Um, and that was Sean Baker and Lena Dunham. Mm. Um, when I, when I saw what they were able to do on these very limited small budgets, it really made me feel like I could make a film on a similar budget. Um, because I think when you're first starting out and, you know, obviously your heroes are making these, you know, very large scale, multi-million dollar movies, you feel like how, like, how can I ever do that? Um, so when I saw those two filmmakers earlier films, I thought, oh, wow, like, no, you really can tell an amazing story with very limited resources. Um, so I'm, yeah. I feel like I, I feel a huge debt, like debt to, to those two filmmakers because I, I, I know that I would not have made Spiral Farm if it wasn't for them. So I'm just like so thankful that they made their, their films. Yeah. And t- tell me what the, the path that your film is taking or, or has taken. Have you had, is it premiering at Slamdance or have you had previous screenings? It is. Yeah. The, the film is having its world premiere at Slamdance in a couple of weeks. Wow. So how do you feel about that? Are you, are you going to be a nervous wreck sitting in the back of the auditorium or are you excited? You know, I went to a Slamdance meeting and, um, Steven Soderbergh was actually there and he gave a great speech to all of us. <laughs> wow. I, it was like, it was super exciting. And he basically said like being nervous is not going to change anything and you've all worked so hard to get here. So really try and enjoy this. Um, and I've been repeating mm. those words in my head <laughs> every day <laughs> in uh, you know, preparation for that because um, you know, I get super nervous on set um, and, you know, I feel like there's a time when that uh, sort of nervous creative energy can actually change the outcome. Um, but I think in this, I think in this case, you, you know, I'm really going to try as hard as I can to just go in and be super grateful that I'm there. Um, it's like such a incredible honor to be screening in Park City at that festival. And I hope that I'm able to just enjoy it and be super thankful um, we have a screening at the Arclight Hollywood on February 12th, um, and that's open wow. to the public as part of the Slamdance um, Arclight Club. So uh, I would, if anyone wants to see the film, I would, I would, I would love to, to meet you and, and have you watch it on the 12th. And that's a great theater. You, c- you can't find a better theater. I know. I'm so excited for that. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that, like, those are pristine presentations there. I cannot believe it yet. That was first-time feature filmmaker Alec Tobaldi, whose new film, Spiral Farm, premieres at the Slamdance Film Festival on January 29th. Finally tonight, we welcome Heidi Eumann, the director of an essential documentary titled Behind the Bullet, which offers multiple portraits of people who have been impacted by gun violence. But there's a twist. These subjects are the typically ignored figures in the gun debate. They're the ones who pulled the trigger and live with the haunting consequences. The film premieres on Friday, January 25th. So this would this be the first kind of objective audience that you've watched it with at Slamdance? Yeah, I've had, uh, so I went through a process of um, testing it while we were still putting it together to, to give input on, um, you know, like peer review sort of thing. 
and then I've shown it um, to private organizations um, mm. who work on trauma. Okay. And what, what was what was their reaction to the film? And what do you what do you learn about the film that you've toiled at for so long when you unveil it to to uh, an audience? Well, I think it's like your reaction. People are finding it to be very powerful. It's an emotional movie. It's not. Um, I'm the feedback I'm getting it is that it's they're surprised that it's not political because whenever you're talking about gun violence, it tends to be in that frame. And so I'm getting the feedback that, that they appreciate that. I don't come to a conclusion in the film that tells you what to do and how to do it. It leaves it, there's an open-ended question that creates a, a deeper conversation, which is, which I was, I'm glad to get that feedback because that was my intention. Um, yeah. And, and people are, people are finding it um, uh, just, just powerful. And it, it's a reminder that it's it's. Um, I mean, your your approach to this, the people that you decided to profile. It's a reminder that there's nothing but tragedy on all sides. It, 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 you're you're absolutely right. It, it takes it off the political stage <clears throat> uh, to the deeply personal and and relatable. Um, yeah, I think and this I'm, I'm issue curi- is is. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. No, please, please continue. So I think this issue, the part of it is this is a really complex issue. And I think often we're looking for bumper sticker solutions. And uh-huh. if, if gun violence was an easy thing to fix, it would have been fixed by now. And so I think this is a, an aspect of gun violence we don't talk about. We, when I first came up with the idea, I searched for uh, stories about people who had shot somebody and just simply couldn't find them. This isn't, these stories aren't being told, and this is an aspect of of gun violence that's not out there. Um, and this film really shows the reality and the complexity of using a gun. Yeah. And, um, I mean, I hate to bring this up, but I, I, I don't see any way around it. Uh, but your entry into this, movement this cause was itself born out of tragedy and uh, of gun violence yeah it was and it's unfortunate you know my my getting involved in this issue came after dave sanders the teacher that died at columbine high school was killed along with the other students and he uh, i graduated from columbine high school 13 years before that shooting and Mm. Um, his death and that shooting really impacted me. And I, I specifically remember the moment when I was sitting at his funeral and I was looking at former teachers of mine with swollen red eyes from crying. And, and I thought something, something's got to be done. And I, I really started to look at this issue and that's when I kind of jumped in and and I've really been working at it ever since. Yeah, it, it it has it has dominated that sense of activism has kind of dominated your life ever since. And I, I'm curious, where were you in your life when it, it took this turn? Well, when it took this turn, I was actually uh, during that shooting. I was at a um, a kinder a kinder care class with my one year old son, 
and I had a four-year-old daughter, and I was a stay-at-home mom. Um, I had been a, a teacher prior to that, a high school health and PE teacher, and um, and so got got really involved in um, working um, on safety issues. And one of the campaigns that I first got involved in was asking people, making sure that others asked if somebody had a gun in somebody's home before my kids played at their house. Uh, just mm. to make sure that uh, so it's, it was a safety question, not a judgment at all on gun ownership, but making sure that if my kids were in somebody's home, that they didn't accidentally find a gun and that there would be a tragic result. Um, so that was a big part of it. But the other the other big thing that came about for me was the stories were really compelling to me. And I ended up writing a book that came out in 2009 about 19 people who were impacted by gun violence. So either they had lost a loved one to gun violence or they had been shot and survived. Because the, the question I was trying to answer, uh, having two kids of my own that were very young, is how do you possibly get out of bed the day after your yeah. child or a loved one is killed? Um, and so I just started asking people that question who had actually had these tragic things happen in their lives. Did you find that for the most part they were, uh, they were eager to share or was it a process? Yeah, they, yeah, they, they were, you know, um, we're a society of optimists and uh, I, I find that people don't often want to hear stories about tragedy and, and the terrible things that happen. And so when I would say to somebody, tell me your story and tell me it completely, um, I know I'm a complete stranger. They really opened up to me, and uh, I was told that it was helpful to them. Um, and so that helped me in this project because when I was interviewing the people for this film, um, the same thing happened. There was that same complexity of I'm a stranger, and I'm basically a stranger going in and saying, hey, uh, can you tell me about the worst day of your life? And, yeah, um, yeah. but they, they too were really open with me. And, um, I think with this particular issue, there's a complexity where they're a victim as well as a perpetrator. And there, there's no support groups for that. There's, um, mm. Kevin, Kevin, one of the people featured in the film, he actually said, you know, he struggles because neighbors will say to him, he justifiably killed somebody who was in his home, stealing his things. He wasn't charged, but neighbors will say to him, hey, Kevin, did you kill anybody today? Oh, and that, as he yeah. said, it stings. And so what is he supposed to do with that? And so for him to be able to tell me that that happens to him fairly regularly and and how his life has changed is is powerful. And and I'm grateful to to be able to give him the opportunity um, to tell his story and to show that difficult part of of what our society's deemed as okay to do. Um, mm -hmm. That that there's still that that consequence, and that there's really what it comes down to is there's a moral injury that happens when you shoot somebody. Yeah. And that uh, that's so valuable. These are these are the kinds of portraits <clears throat> I've never seen before, um, and and so it 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 reframes this whole issue uh, in in a very unique uh, 
deeply moving way, I think, what you've done here. Um, you know, I don't know how to ask this, but uh, I remember years ago, I was interviewing a documentarian that made a movie about uh, Jonestown, and he mm-hmm. was interviewing the survivors who were going beat by beat through the trauma, and it was very emotional. And obviously, you are a very compassionate person, as I think I think most filmmakers are. I mean, their job is empathy. Uh, yeah. How do you balance the, you know, seeing someone in such raw pain in front of you and also maintaining your place as the the filmmaker? I mean, my first instinct would be to go over and talk and comfort them, (laughs) but that, that wouldn't necessarily work for, for your, for your film. I mean, is that, is that uh, an adjustment for you, for you that you have to make? Yeah, de- definitely. So I, I was fortunate to, I, one of my volunteer jobs that I do is I work with an organization in Portland, Oregon called Trauma Intervention Program. And we go out alongside first responders and we basically provide first um, uh, emotional first aid alongside actual first aid. So if somebody dies, then we sit with the person while they're waiting for their support system to arrive. Mm-hmm. And so through mm-hmm. that, I gained these experiences and, and I was trained to, to just sit with somebody in their awfulness of that moment and to be empathetic to them and, and just listen and wait until they have their daughter or their son or their mother or their father or whoever. Anyway, what's happened through that, through that is I, I do know how to comfort people and to sit with them and, and let them process what's happening. Um, the frustration and the difficulty as a filmmaker, where I found this really to be challenging, is there's a there's a scene in the film where a boy who um, killed his he accidentally killed his he's an eight year old and he accidentally killed his five year old little brother. His mom I interviewed, her name's Beth, and when I was interviewing her. This is 10 years after the shooting. She's still clearly processing and is still very upset. And the interview was difficult because she cried pretty much the whole entire time. And my instinct to reach out to her and to touch her and to, to comfort her in her pain, I had to hold back I, because you, um, the way I – the way I directed and did this film is, is to, I'm not a part of the film. And so I couldn't reach out to her and I couldn't even oftentimes when we listen to people will actively listen and say, say comforting words or say, Oh, Oh, I'm so sorry. And I was not able to do that because that would ruin the cut and it would ruin the scene. Um, And so I really found that to be challenging. And in fact, we ended up having to stop halfway through the interview to check in with her and say, you know, are you okay? Can, do you want to continue doing this? And, and just to make sure that give her a break and, and make sure that she was okay, because I certainly would not want to have re-traumatized anybody through this process. Yeah. Thank you for answering that because that, that, that has been a curiosity of mine for a long time. Cause I, I find even when I'm doing interviews uh, uh, here for the show on the phone, I'm constantly yeah. 
grunting and saying, uh-huh, yeah, yeah, you know, <laughs> acknowledging right. my it's, understanding. Right, it's a natural it. thing we do. Yeah, it was, there were, there, and there, some of, sometimes I just couldn't help myself. And, and then in the editing process, I would say, oh, darn it, I can't use that. I said, oh. But um, but yeah, it was uh, that that's just that's just the challenge of of documentary filmmaking. Now now these these four subjects that you profile in the film are they taken from the book? Had you or, or are they four new subjects entirely? Had you already established a rapport with them? No, these were four separate people that I that I interviewed. Um, I okay. originally come up with the idea through writing the book, um, there was one particular story of a, a little girl who was playing at a friend's home and they found the dad's gun in his briefcase and one of the girls shot the other girl. She survived um, and and is okay now to this day, but I often wondered what happened to the girl who shot her and mm. um, and how does she deal with this? And there must be a, a added complexity of guilt and shame around it, and so that was sort of where this this film came from. And this is your your first film, isn't it? Yeah, it is. I've not done a film before. Wow. So, was it? Uh, tell me about that process. Of was there a time during shooting where you? Where you felt okay, I, I I know exactly what I'm doing. I've got this thing licked. <laughs> Just in the technical sense of putting together oh, a documentary. Oh, I wish. Oh, I I'm waiting for that feeling. Um, <laughs> I'll let you know when and if that ever happens. No, but I um, you know, I what I originally wanted to do was write another book and write the this side of the gun, um, uh, the stories of people who shot somebody. But what I figured out that was that because it is so complex and there's there's guilt and shame and loss and all these really complex and oppositional feelings, I really cool. felt like a book wasn't the place for it. I thought film was a better medium because of facial expressions. And I think Kevin, the person in the film who shot the intruder, it comes out really well in his story because he talks about how he was absolutely justified in, in shooting and killing these people that were in his home and they deserved it. Um, but at the same time, his facial expressions and demeanor tell you that he, he has a lot of guilt about it and he's really unsettled about it and, and that there is regret and he doesn't say that he has regret, but, but mm -hmm. I, you can, you can tell. And that wouldn't have come I, I, out in, in a book. There's no way I could have edited a book in that way to show that. I completely agree. And that, that was one of the things that was so impressive to me about the movie, especially his story, because, uh, first of all, the photography is wonderful. Um, and and it, it, just, the sna just like the snapshots of setting, the snapshots of where he exists, of what he's doing and, and, you know, when he's, when he's fishing or baiting a hook or something or, and, and you're right. I mean, just seeing a face on screen, you, you can't write that in a book necessarily, just the power and what that yeah. provides you. Yeah. And I, I, I appreciate your, you commenting on the um, filming the, I had two incredible cameramen 
that just they did an amazing job and they were on you know one of them we filmed in in um, North Carolina and in DC and in Florida and Seattle and um, so they were in Philadelphia so they were they came with me all over the country and it was a, a, a great pleasure to get to know them and and see their work and it's I, I'm so proud of the filming that they've done yeah absolutely it, it uh, you know that's um, it had a which some documentaries don't but yours has uh, understanding of the cinematic language and the power of it and that was immensely mm. impressive to me and I, I, I so appreciated that it wasn't a, yeah I don't take, I don't dro- take credit I, for that that's definitely definitely Kenny Allen and Sky Fitzgerald my cameraman they were amazing well they I'm sure they were in no small, small part inspired by the passion that you bring to this um, and, and did, do you have the documentarian bug is this something you want to pursue? Well, you know, it was an interesting process, and um, I I absolutely would be interested in in doing more stories. Uh, clearly, so most I f- I feel like most documentarians are um, sort of horizontal, and they do lots of different documentaries about lots of really important issues. Um, I'm very vertical in my in my passion around gun violence. Um, and mm-hmm. telling the story and looking for solutions, and so I I would be interested in working on another project where I'm telling stories about gun violence victims. I really I really liked doing this project because it was a an aspect or a side that I hadn't seen before. Um, the other thing it, it was born from was a um, a few years ago I was really interested in the there was such this debate about guns and gun ownership and and about carrying guns um, to protect oneself and so I I went and got a permit to carry a concealed weapon and I then I went and bought a gun and I carried it around and I wrote a um, a four-piece series called my month with a gun and what I wanted to do is just experience what does it feel like to carry a gun um, what does it do to you emotionally Physically, turns out it's really hard to uh, put a seatbelt on when you have a gun on your hip. Um, I wanted to find out what it felt like to have the gun next to me when I was sleeping and when my husband was out of town um, and all those kinds of things. So it was like this experiential thing. And so I wanted to do the same with this topic of what does it feel like to shoot somebody. But I, of course, didn't want to go and shoot somebody or put myself in a situation where I would have to do that. So... um, so then I so I interviewed these these four people. Yeah. Is do you know uh, do you have a sense of why more than anywhere else in the world it seems that our country is is just shrouded in like a, a love of guns like a like a giddy culture of guns. Or am I wrong? Well, I, I, I really, I really do think it, it, it comes down to sort of our uh, founding, and and this sort of independent spirit and stuff like that. It's very similar to Australia, that has, um, you know, was sort of shrouded and began in this independent spirit and individualism and mm-hmm. and sort of taking care of yourself. And so there's definitely been a an aspect and a part where that we're guns have been necessary and i think it's important you know that we 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 re-examine that 
Um, and what we see right now is just so unfortunate. And and again, my focus being on um, having conversations and um, especially with gun owners about how do we how do we find solutions? Yeah, yeah. And 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 for the layperson that sees your film and is inspired by it to to go into some sort of action of their own. What would you recommend? What avenues are out there where people can contribute to deepen the understanding of this? Well, I think there's there's organizations that are out there. Um, I think it, well, it starts at home, and 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 I, I think a large part of of what we we've got 300 million guns in our homes and in the you know in America, so it's sort of one for each person, uh, adult and child, and I think that. Um, talking in your own family and own community about what is the risk of having those guns in our homes and especially when they're not locked up. So I, I was very intentional about telling the story of Taylor and his dad, Darren. And again, Taylor was the eight-year-old boy who accidentally killed his five-year-old brother when he, accident, or when he came upon their, the mom's gun that wasn't locked up. And so, you know, if, if she would have, if she would have had that, or the family would have locked that gun up that particular day, then this wouldn't have happened. So I think mm-hmm. it's creating those kinds of conversations and, and um, it in fact is um, statistics show that it's not, you're more, you're much more likely to be killed by a gun in your home than to use it against somebody who's, you know, trying to get in. But ultimately, yeah. you know, we, um, the the decisions are based on fear and and love at the same time. So when you when you love your family, you want to protect them, and you're fearful of something bad happening. And so there it's these two complex, really um, deep emotions. Yeah, and uh, again, I, I thank you for this film, and I I'm anxious to hear. What you, the reaction you get from the Slam Dance audience? Does does your film have distribution? Are you looking for distribution, or where's where that now? Yeah, I'm, I'm looking for distribution right now. I ha, um, so that's still sort of in the process. I have a, a couple agents that are working on that. Um, so yeah, that's definitely part of my plan is just getting this out as wide as possible, and then also touring around the country outside of festivals, sort of educational and community mm-hmm. groups um, to be able to uh, create conversations a- around how do we, uh, what does this mean? And, and uh, because it, because there are no easy answers, I think it's important to, to have this bigger conversation. And I'm hoping yeah. my film will, will really start that. That was filmmaker Heidi Human, director of the essential new documentary titled Behind the Bullet, which premieres at the Slam Dance Film Festival on Friday, January 25th. That's it for the Movie Geeks United Slam Dance Spotlight. For more information and to purchase tickets, visit slamdance.com.